And welcome back, everybody, to Surviving Hollywood Podcast. I'm Austin. I am Aaron. I'm Johnny. Today we are honored to have, man, Modern Family, oh, Cheers, oh Frazier, oh. Orville. I'm forgetting half of them, but Dan O'Shannon <laughs> went to high school with our mom, mm-hmm. writer, executive producer, great guy. Multi-Emmy winner and um, Golden Globe. Oh, Oscar nominated? <laughs> Yeah. Oh uh, boy. Hey. Dan someone, someone has Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> well, Johnny watched We it Googled everything right now. Oh, really? Okay, good. Uh, no, but I did watch your, your short, by the way. Oh, which, which one? Did it come uh, Red X Writing Hood. Oh, that one. That yeah. one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's a hard one to find. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I never released that, you know. It, I saw online that it was, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, we no. just got in, right into it. Yeah. Um, I saw that Disney was holding it for like 15 years or something. They, they wouldn't release it, I guess. I don't know what happened there, but it's strange. That, well, it's a. If I should explain that it's an animated short, and uh, it's a. I was I had a deal at Disney at the time, and I was doing TV for them, and uh, their TV animation department wanted to do a straight to home video collection of like you know silly versions of fairy tales, the usual kind of thing. And they wanted them to appeal to kids as well as adults. And they decided rather than go to their usual writers, they would go to sitcom writers and kind of open up and see if they got different kinds of ideas. And they asked me if I would do it. And um, uh, I, I thought about it and I thought, well, if I can, if I can do um, like one more version of Little Red Riding Hood that hasn't been done, because I'm a big anima- animation buff and all the old mm. cartoons and the cartoon directors always did versions of that particular story that I always liked. And then uh, on the way home that day, the whole story just popped fully formed into my head. And that rarely happens, but it did that day. And I went back to them and I said, I have an idea. And they liked it and we did it. And it does, you know, interestingly for me enough, TV writers don't always segue well into animation. And it, that was shown once back on the Flintstones. When the Flintstones started, that was actually a takeoff on a show called The Honeymooners, which was a live action show with Jackie Gleason. Right. And, and um, they decided to do an animated version of it, and they hired all these writers from the Honeymooners to write episodes of the Flintstones, figuring, let's get the real writers here. And they were all dialogue-heavy, but in animation, you want physical bits and gags, you know? Right. And, uh, and a lot of times when people write sitcoms, they're always thinking of the dialogue, and, the, and really, what is the action? He gets up from the couch and answers the door, or pours himself coffee, whatever. Uh, so... Um, but because I am an animation buff, like I said, I have a knack for the, the physical stuff, and I will write physical bits into Cheers and the shows that I did. And so um, I handed in the script. They liked it. We made it. Uh, a really great director named Steve Moore um, created the look of the thing. And, um, and they started showing it in festivals, and it started doing really well. And so they'd never released it on home video, but then it was up for an Oscar, and we lost to Pixar. And... Um, and you know, so it's out there, but no one's seen it. And they never. Re- it's a weird length too. It's like fifteen minutes or something. Yeah, it was like fifteen yeah. minutes. I saw that they released it finally in two thousand twelve. Um, they did release it. I didn't even know they released it. Well, at least maybe I can get a copy. Of I it. don't know. <laughs> I fa- I found it online, just kind of like scouring different sites, yeah. and I came across like, oh, someone's like, here's a link to it, and oh, I found funny. it on YouTube. But um, oh, you know what? I it was really cool. I really liked the premise. The story was really good. Oh, I was like, so what a, what a cool take on. Little Red Riding Hood, you know? Oh, thanks. So, thanks. It was nice done. And by the way, Dan will be giving that guy a cease and desist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> well, where, where did you get a copy of that? How did that happen? And then Michael the Richards, way, how did that become, because of Seinfeld? He was, was on, yeah, Mia Farrow was uh, in it, uh, Fabio. Uh, who that, else was that's there? right. We had, we had a bunch of 
people. Adam West did a line on it. Um, oh. um, and that was all Steve Moore and the Disney production people. Okay. They had them in. I went for some of the recordings, and I was there for the editing and stuff. But uh, um, yeah, they had an amazing bunch of people over there. Sharon Morrow was uh, in charge of the whole thing. Whatever happened to Sharon Morrow? Anyway. Um, do, you, uh, do you give uh, Michael Richards notes? Like, are you... Well, I did. The director did. Okay. Uh, but I, I sort of stayed out of that. Occasionally, I, I might have a little kind of, can we get a little more anger on this or a little more mm. frustration or, or that that sort of thing. But but really, that was all Steve Moore. I mean, he really kind of made that into something. And the animators, uh, they added jokes to it. And there's one I hate, but there's like five I love. So I'll take the one I hate for the five I love. Nice. You know? So uh, it, was, it was very nice and collaborative. And, uh, and we were all happy with the story. How does it work when they add jokes? Do they just add stuff in there and they just show it, show it to you? Or is it like, hey, we're thinking about doing this and it's more of a collaborative process? Well, or I saw the storyboards. Okay. And so they had, they had these pictures uh, up on the wall of the sequences. And, um, and, oh, and then they made something called, what was, I don't know if they still call it this, a like a reel. And it was a reel. It had the soundtrack, basically, a rough cut of the soundtrack, along with stills and like some limited animation pieces. So you can get like, a feel for it. And so some of the animators had put in jokes in that stage. Uh, and uh, and like I say, some of them I loved. One I w- wasn't sure about, and then I ended up hating, like I said. But uh, there were others that were just like really just silly and perfectly <laughs> within the, the tone of the thing and, yeah. and really added a lot. So I was, I was very happy with, with Steve and and, uh, and the animators who uh, made it work. Nice. I loved it. I thought it was oh, really, really so cool. Nice. I, I, was, I was so impressed with the story. Speaking of, um, you took it through the festival circuit because in our spare time, we like to make short films and put it well, through the festival. You know that we're actors. Johnny's also an actor, but yeah. we also made a short film. At, uh, dark comedy, very dark. What was your experience like? Did you show up to those festivals? Well, I only showed up at one. Um, the local Dis- one. Because Disney did it all. You know, So right. they had the executives who could, like, yeah. they, they made the calls. They put it out there. I didn't have to you know, take it around myself. It would have right. been a fun experience, I think. But uh, I never had to do any of that. So I went to one. and Which one? Uh, uh, I went to one. It was nearby. It might have been like San Diego or something like that. I'm tapping the nice. cup. That's what that sound is. <laughs> <laughs> ASMR. Um, uh, <laughs> hey, whoa. Hi, Tap. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I saw one like in San Diego or something, and the audience was really... I had an experience once with, a, with an animated short. I did, I've done two. And the other one um, was a story I came up with, and I went to an animator named Bill Plimpton who's done tons of animated shorts. If you saw his style, you know who I, how, who I mean. And um, and he and I produced this cartoon, and it did really well. And it was it got on the Oscar shortlist. And what that is, is that's a list. They they when they pick their five nominees or whatever it is, they usually start by by culling the entire submission into like 10, 15 choices, and then they have screenings, and people go and they choose the five that they want to be nominated. So so that's the shortlist, and uh, so the shortlist is the fifteen or whatever it was. And I went to the screening of, uh, uh, and I, we, we were very high on this cartoon. We thought this is this might not just get nominated. This might take home the statue. We were very mm. excited about yeah. it. And I went to the screen. He's in New York, Bill Plimpton, the director. And I'm in Los Angeles. And I went to the Academy screening. And they're showing all these other cartoons. And then ours comes up. And I'm watching it, and it's fuzzy. And some of the picture, some of the parts of the cartoon that are on the edges of the screen are actually off the screen. Uh-oh. You can't see them. And so it's this kind of ugly thing to look at. And what had happened was he'd written the wrong aspect, sorry, he'd written the wrong aspect ratio on the box. 
Oh, no. Oof. And so the Academy like watched this thing, and some of it made <laughs> sense, and some of it didn't, because they're referring to things that are now off camera. Yeah. And it just, just was kind of a mess. And I just sat there, and ah, oh, and we did not then get nominated. <laughs> they thought it was purposeful. They thought yeah. it was yeah. I, They thought, well, this is it. Really? This is on the short list? Okay. The Academy um, was like, better luck next year. Yeah. And by the way, I, I to, to be fully fair, it... That it's, there's no guarantee that if they'd shown it in the correct aspect ratio, it would have gotten nominated. I'm not saying right. it should have. Well, pretty much, but we know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but but that didn't it didn't help. Does it does it make you want to email them individually and be like, guys, this was the real thing? While, while <laughs> okay. it was while it was being shown, I wanted to run up to whoever was hosting or putting together that right. that, that evening and and say, look, there's something wrong. There's something. But I right. I, I was just too paralyzed. Stop by the it. film. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And also, I, I wish I had that kind of personality where I could have stood up and waved my arms. And said, <laughs> yeah, Don't watch shit. this. Stop Don't, the film. This isn't but it. I, I just I I hate attention. I'm one of those people that if I started to have a heart attack on a plane. I wouldn't just, tell anybody. Wouldn't <laughs> they would just find me. You just in quietly die. <laughs> like not even because that would draw attention. Yeah. I would really try to look as as just I would just look as casual as I could and just hope to die frozen in that position, <laughs> so that they they wouldn't really notice until the rest of the plane had emptied. Right. Wow. Sir, would you like something to drink? No, he's he's sleeping. Yes, uh, that's oh, a he's, don't disturb him. Don't disturb him. He's done. There's a lot of flies, but that's weird. <laughs> um. So how do you fare? Do you show up to any of the networking stuff? Or like if you're you have a premiere or a film? Uh, la, 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 la. No, I think except for, like, I went to one festival for the one cartoon, and then I went to, uh, uh, I went to that that screening. Um, I have not. I, I've only seen a couple of my things in the theater ever, and it w- and it was really cool because usually I do TV, so you don't see a lot of your stuff in the movie theater. Um, but I've I've done punch up on some some movies, and so like what. Um, I, there was a Lindsay Lohan movie. I think was the first one I did. I, Freaky Friday. A, no, no, it was a one where she was very lucky. Uh, what was it called? Like Just My Luck or something? I'm, I'm not familiar with I'm, that one. I can see it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Something like that. I know what you're and talking she, about. And uh, and uh, and I've done some animated features for Leica Studios, and uh, like Kubo in the Two Strings, and um, oh, I did another one. I remember that it's one. Been out, but I, I've done I've done a couple of those. And I don't know if you know, but like the majority of our audience is up and coming filmmakers, writers, actors, people looking to get in the industry. People surviving Hollywood. Exactly. I see. I see. Okay. So when you're doing punch up, yeah, would you have any um, advice for writers out there? Just writing in general. Well, yeah. they, um, they, oh my, so much of that. Um, you wrote the book. I've I wrote a book, yeah. but uh, th- that's like comedy theory and stuff. That's all psychology. But uh, um, when when doing punch up on a movie, what they do, and they're very smart about this, is they have someone who is uh, kind of runs the thing, a writer who's sort of the head writer of the room. And in, in the cases of these Leica movies that I did, it was uh, Jay Kogan, who I, I respect quite a lot. And uh, he would then assemble a bunch of writers from different places. There was like a Simpsons writer and then me and so some people that do this a lot. And what they do is they get a conference room at a hotel for like eight hours. And we all sit around that table and we talk about the big things that need fixing in the script. And then we'll go like scene by scene, like places where they could use some punch ups and some jokes. And we throw in stuff that we think of along the way or, you know, we've usually read the script the night before. Um, And uh, the head writer is really good because he keeps it moving. And I I think in any situation where you're writing collaboratively, you need somebody to be in charge. Somebody who says, okay, yes, you can, because people will fight to the death for their way of doing something. I think the character should leave here. No, we could use them later. No, I think it could be there till midnight. And you need someone to hear it all and say, I see both sides. They both are valid, but we're going to go with this one. And then you're letting the room know we're now moving in this direction. And if you don't have that, then a room will just 
dissolve into chaos. We were there till three in the morning all the time. Interesting. And have you ever had to fight like hard? Did you ever believe in an idea that you? Yeah, I think I fought more when I was younger at it. And that happens. That's uh, natural. A lot of young writers come in and uh, I certainly did. And you, you hand in your script and you've worked really hard on it and you work and you've had a reason for every line, every word. And then the executive producer says, well, we can just cut page three. <laughs> and and when you're a young writer, you go, no, 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 you need it because it's, it sets up this thing over there and you've got this whole thing and there's the blah, 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 blah. And they'll just look at you and say, we're going to cut page three. <laughs> and, then, and then if you're smart, you will shut up at that point, which fortunately, eventually I did. Um, but Is this on Cheers? Uh, no, this was on a show called Newhart, which I did before Cheers. Got mm. you. Um, but, um, you know, you find as you get older, you don't need page three. You know, I'm, I'm just making a page three. You probably do need a page three. It's the most important page <laughs> in the script. It could be. I'm exactly you know. wrong. But, uh, but uh, very, it's surprising how much you don't need. When you're writing it, you think you need every syllable. And then when you come to it fresh and you're editing, you go, well, you can cut from here to there and you can lose this. And you can, turns out you don't need anything. Um, but uh, you learn to stop fighting for things. Uh, unless something you, and even even then, if you're not running the thing, you can only fight for so long before you're just obnoxious. You know, I do remember uh, on Newhart, uh, the first time I was writing with a, a guy named Tom Anderson, also from the Cleveland area, from Willoughby, Woo. Ohio. Shout out to Willoughby, Ohio. Woo. And uh, and he um, he and I wrote an episode of uh, Newhart, and we handed in the draft, and we were getting notes on it for a second second uh, uh, pass at it. And the executive producer said, and it was the first line for Newhart's wife in the show. And, uh, and it was a little dry kind of joke. It wasn't terribly funny, but it was just a dry kind of line just to get us going. And they said, could you make this line drier? And we were looking at it going, I weren't quite sure what that meant. So, so <laughs> I said, can you give us an example, not even a good, just a bad example, just to give us a direction. And they said, well, more like, um, could it be more, you know, sort of like, I just sort of like um, well, you know, just make it drier. And so we took the note, and we got notes on the rest of the script. And we go off to do our rewrite. And we open the, the script, and that's the first joke. And we're looking at it, and we go, I don't know how to make this drier, do you? And no, we looked at it for half an hour, and then we said, you know, let's just rewrite the rest of the script, and we'll come back to this. We rewrote the rest of the script, and we come back to the first page, and we're both looking at it. So finally, I just wrote dryly in parentheses in front of the line. And they loved it. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> all I needed. Wow. <laughs> they had no clue. No. And that's the thing is you, you learn little tricks uh, along the way. There was one time uh, on Cheers, there was a, an actor that we had, and she, we, we always in our head pictured that she would blow up on this one line that the script was building to. And during rehearsals, she would always kind of play it under. And we thought, well, she's saving her energy or whatever. And we talked to the director, you know, Jimmy Burroughs. Could you get her a little more on this line? More like, and you don't want to give the actor a line reading because that's a little insulting. But at the same time, this one really depended on the line reading. And so the day of the filming, I ran into her at the craft service table. And I talked about how much we loved having her on the show. And, and, and we particularly, oh, we just fall down laughing every time. Because there's this one line you do, and it's so funny. When you get out there and you say, and I said the line the way it's supposed to be said, mm -hmm. I said, oh, we all just fall down laughing. We talked about it for days. And she, really? And that's the way she did it that night. That's wow. <laughs> that's the way so to I, do it. I gave, I, I gave her a line reading wrapped in praise. That is, that is smart. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting because we haven't done that many Multi-cams. I don't know, Johnny, if you have done... We've done Not a lot of multis. There are fewer. Right? A lot of single say, cams. MECs be all over the place. There are, there are fewer of them. I hear they're yeah. looking for the next big one now that... Um, big Bang. Big Bang. The Big Bang theory is up. But um, how much do you trust... Or do you... How much can you trust the actors? Or if you trust this cast, 
are you a little easier in the writer's room? Do you write differently versus if you're not sure about the cast? Um, you know, I've seen where uh, when writers are not sure or, or of what the actors can do or if they don't believe the actors can pull it off, they'll write things that aren't quite as good. And what I mean by that is they will write to the limitations that they see for the actor. They won't write the best thing for the character. Someone will pitch something, and then the head writer will say, yeah, that, that is a great joke, but that actor can't do these kind of jokes. Hmm. And I did work on a show a couple years ago. I shouldn't say what it was, but the lead actor was limited. There was a certain couple There was a certain couple of things. Don't. We, we <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah. we, we won't say. We won't say. I'll, We'll just take guesses. Um, <laughs> all your shows have been hits, so it's hard. <laughs> to no, this, this, one, uh, this one was not a big hit, although it was on for three years, but it was not a hit. Now, when you say limited, what do you mean by that exactly? There were a few things comedically that he did that would just knock the ball out of the park. Okay. But if you needed him to act real or her, it could have been a her. Could have been both. Now, <laughs> yeah, 2019. Or neither. Could have been an um, animal. We don't know. An animal on set. Furniture. But uh, <laughs> whatever it's... Um, was doing, uh, you know, you couldn't, there were certain kinds of comedic turns you just couldn't get. We'd write them in, and you'd think, oh, this will be great, and then and then the delivery would not be there for that particular type of joke. Or if you needed certain uh, emotional scenes, this person was not great at the emotion. But when this person was back in his or her own wheelhouse doing the thing that, that really hit, it was great. And so what that does in your writer's room is it limits what you can put in the script. So you're not writing your best script, you're writing what will serve that actor. Mm. And it's very hard in that case um, to, uh, to really do your best work in a way. But then again, there will be times when the actors will surprise you and make something 10 times better than it was, and you realize, oh my God, I, what I've been writing is so narrow, I could really write like crazy. And right. one of the better examples of that was, um, I think, uh, back on Cheers, and this was before I got there, uh, they hired Kirstie Alley on the show, and uh, they originally wrote her as this kind of very uh, icy, kind of austere woman, and um, and it was doing okay. The show was doing okay, and then there was an episode where they needed her to cry, and she cried in a way that was both hysterical and real, so your heart broke while you were laughing, and to, to be able to do that is really a gift, and everyone thought, wait, we've got to get her to cry more, and so <laughs> before you know it, she became, the, her character started to change became this very neurotic kind of character that was always on the urge, uh, verge of uh, tears. And that's the thing where you write to the actor's strengths, and instead of limiting you, it, it opens up the characters. Because I, I think at first, you know, the character is the property of the writer, and then the actor comes in and, and infuses it with a kind of life, but also brings their own life into it, you know, because they can never completely get rid of their own voices. So that infuses the character, and then they and the writer become co-parents, basically, of the character. And you have to be open for the actor giving your character something you never expected. And you can't be so nailed to your character that it's like, no, my character can only do this. You have to keep your eyes open for those little bits of magic that you're not expecting so that you can be smart enough to incorporate them. And if you're, if you're good at incorporating other people's magic, then that fools everyone to thinking you're a good writer. So if, if the, let's say if the lead is more limited, like you said, mm -hmm. is one idea that can help solve it too is surrounding them by a cast that is not as limited. Is that kind yes. of a way to help kind of, you know? Yeah, you know, so so we would find ways for other characters to kind of carry the emotion. And then we would just do tricks, like there was one where we locked him in a closet for the big emotional scene. <laughs> and so we could just have him ADR all the stuff. We just picked our best readings oh, and oh. stitched together in a, a performance. Interesting. I thought you meant literally locked him in a closet. Oh, so no, we yeah. had the character <laughs> locked in. Oh, I was like, two. whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we locked the character in a closet. And so, so the scene had to be emoted by the person that we could see on camera. Um, but yeah, you... you 
you do that. And at the same time, though, it's like if this person's your lead, you hopefully, you know, some shows are built for the lead to be a little bit less funny than the others. Th- they're, there's more grounded character. Right. That goes back to like Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to think. There's a million shows that do that. It used to be back in the early days, the, the central character was the zany one, like Lucy. It was mm-hmm. the center of the show. She was crazy. And then, in the, you know, sometime in the 60s or 70s, the, the sane person became the middle, the island of the, uh, the insane people. Like Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but uh, I always find that interesting. But yeah, you, you have to find ways to compensate. Right. You know, so you can do the best show you can with whatever you've got. How's working TV changed from, you know, working in the, in the 80s and 90s till today? Well, um, now that I'm in my 80s and 90s, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a couple things are different. One is that the, the writer's room, we're a lot more psychological with our characters than we used to be. And uh, what I mean is back in the 70s, and when they were, I wasn't there in the 70s, uh, but uh, when they were writing, for example, The Odd Couple, I always use this example. Uh, Felix was neat and Oscar was messy. Felix liked the opera, Oscar liked sports, you know, whatever. And they just wrote the characters and it was funny. And I'm sure it was more to that and it was a lot harder, but that's <laughs> the basic idea. We're done. But, in, but when we did the reboot of that, we were sitting in the room going, okay, why is Felix neat? What is it in his life that he feels out of control that he needs to, and, you know, and uh, Oscar, why is he messy? What is he rebelling against? Is he angry? Is it really a way of manifesting that? And we, we've all been in therapy, and so we're constantly therapizing our characters. And I remember I went through that transition myself in the 80s when I was working on Cheers. There was a character named Cliff who was the mailman, the sort of know-it-all. Yeah. And I used to love writing dialogue for him because he would just write these long, these long funny speeches. Hey, yeah, it's a little known fact now, me that uh, you know whatever. <laughs> and it was great writing the jokes. And at that time in my life, I started going into therapy because I was terribly unhappy. Unlike now, <laughs> <laughs> cry, cry, cry. And um, and uh, and as I was in therapy, and it was all these new ideas to me. The idea that there were things from my childhood or whatever that were affecting how I was as an adult. If I'm upset about this, I might really be because I'm upset about that. And when I'm happy here, blah 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 blah. And I began to think, well, you know, the characters that I'm writing would have these same internal drive. I was, I was figuring out uh, uh, subtext essentially, and because I, I realized the characters did not wake up and decide I'm going to go to a bar and make America laugh every day. They don't think they're funny. You know, and that's one of the things I, I sort of come down on young writers for. If there's something that's gratuitous and it's funny, I'll say, why is this happening? Why is the character doing this? And if they say, because it's funny, I'll say, no, that's, but, but they're not trying to be funny. Right. And so it's sticking out to me. You know, the characters have to be true to what they want, to their, their needs or fears or anger or their goals, whatever, their hope, whatever's in there. And um, so I began to write th- a little more richly for the characters, I, I think, a little at a time. It was a slow evolution for me. But I started to gravitate from writing... Cliff to writing Frasier, and Frasier had started off as a character on Cheers, and I gravitated to him, but not because he was a psychiatrist, but because he was the guy who would come in the bar, and he would put down everybody for wasting their lives by hanging around a bar, but he never left, you know, <laughs> so here was a guy who inside couldn't admit to himself that he needed to be there, he needed these people, even though he put them down, and so someone that has that much internal conflict has a very rich character, and that's the kind of character that you could then go and spin off for 11 years, which of course they did. So that, 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 that was different, is that we're a lot more sort of psychologically minded. And I, f- I find writers' rooms now just regularly engage in dissecting these characters in ways that I don't think they always used to do. Is that why you s- decided to spin off Frasier as opposed to a different character? Was there something in the, that well, character itself that... I think that, well, that was spun off by um, David Lee and uh, Peter Casey and David Angel, uh, three guys who had uh, run Cheers before I had been there. And uh, 
I don't know that it was a conscious decision. Like he is the richest character, therefore we will spin him off. I think yeah. I think it was uh, serendipity that that's the character that they focused on, and that this script turned out as amazingly as it did for their pilot. Um, but it's a, it it was very lucky that that was the character because he was so rich as a character and so brilliant as an actor. One of the things that Kelsey can do brilliantly, Kelsey Grammer, is he can act angry. And you will think he is really angry, but he can do it in a way that also makes you laugh. Yeah. He can act heartbroken in a way that breaks your heart. Like Kirsty, uh, he would be heartbroken, but in a way that made you laugh. Now, some actors, even comedic actors, you'll give them really intense feelings like that, and they will act the feelings, but the humor's gone. So you go, wow, that person's really mad. Wow, that person's, whoa, that person's really heartbroken. But they're not making you laugh at the same time. And what Kelsey does better than anyone I've ever seen is be able to manipulate all those emotions yet never let go of what's funny about them. It's just brilliant. Dan, what would you say is the, uh, when you look back, you know, you're one third, one third of the way, you know, through your career, maybe 25%. What are, what are you most proud of? <laughs> <laughs> what are you most proud of? This podcast, notwithstanding. Uh, oh, not yeah. Included? Well, not or, anymore. Well, so far this. Yeah, obviously, exactly. obviously this, but. Built to this is my last day in showbiz. Um, what am I proudest of? Yeah. Uh, I think pr- on a personal level, uh, you know, when I was young, I uh, decided I was going to be funny. I was not born funny. A lot of people are. And I did not have that natural charisma that a lot of kids have. And they could just make everyone laugh and fall down. You ask your mom. She went to school with me. We will. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was one of those kids that walked around trying to be funny all the time. So I was loud and brash. And I fell down a lot. Or I was talking in funny voices or trying to structured jokes and I'm a kid you know um, and I was quite obnoxious for many years but I really wanted to figure it out and many many years of just you know watching cartoons and comedies and reading mad magazine and then eventually comedic essays and I started by the time I was about 18 or 19 to become uh, somewhat funny and then started doing stand-up and then I really started my education and then into the writing could you give us a tight five <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Actually, uh, I think I, I did stand up uh, like last year in Cleveland just oh to really? see if I could still do it. Yeah, it was kind of fun. Um, How much do you prepare for that? Uh, I, ha- I, you know, there's always been sort of thoughts in the back of my head that I sort of went to, you know, that, oh, that was make, this would make kind of a funny bit or whatever. Do Cleveland specific jokes like Drew Carey? Or I did at the top of it, you know, just because I, I talked about the fact that I'd been away from Cleveland for 35 years and what was different and what was the same. So I did a little bit of that and nice. then more generic stuff. Um, and then I did a couple impressions. I mean, I really didn't try to create an act and a character and for anything long term. So, what's your go-to impression? Oh, uh, Stephen Hawking doing stand-up comedy. Can, can um, we, can just, we can just get comedy. a little taste? Stephen Hawking doing comedy? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. See, I don't do it very well. Um, but I guess I saw. Okay. I had a fight with my wife the other night. She said, "Do not select that tone of voice with me." (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Too soon. (laughs) Ladies, don't you hate it when your husband leaves the lid up on his waste disposal suction tube? (laughs) 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 So anyway, um, and then I then I I did a bit where he did impressions, but of course they all sounded like him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So um, anyway, so uh, so stand up. I don't know. Oh yeah. So becoming funny, and. I think what I'm sort of proudest of are sort of two things, and they're both very personal to me, is one is that I now, through all that work and dedication, uh, I have a resume that says this guy was funny. You know, in fact, because of that, I don't feel the need to be compulsively funny all the time. When I was young, like in my 20s, maybe up the early 30s, I was still constantly trying to make people laugh all the time, and I think I needed that kind of uh, uh, validation or whatever. 
And now that I basically have it on paper, you know, this this guy did funny things. I feel I don't feel the need to be that anymore, which is nice. It frees me up, and it's a little more relaxing. Now you can write dramas. Yeah, I have. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've I've written dramas and uh, sci-fi and uh, all kinds of stuff. And the other thing is the the book that I mentioned because it's a uh, it's all psychology, but it's comedy theory, and it, it lays out. What's a it called? It's called. Uh, I have it. It's called. What are you laughing at? A comprehensive guide to the comedic event. Yeah. The rest of the book's funnier. But, um, <laughs> but it really takes apart and dissects comedy and the mechanism that, that causes us to have a reaction that we recognize as humorous. And, um, and it's very in-depth. And it really, to me, it, and it creates a new kind of uh, formula, not formula, but a landscape for how comedy works, the various variables that can come into play um, when we encounter stuff that we find humorous. And um, it's different than other comedy theory books where they say all comedy is this or all comedy is that, whatever. And uh, it took me eight solid years of writing, but it, it went back and relied on things that I started learning from the time I was a child. And so to me, that's my life's work. That's where I kind of like started from an eight-year-old going, what is funny to me than writing a book that says, this is funny after a lifetime of doing it. And I've had thousands of audiences and tens or hundreds of thousands of jokes and humorous situations played out in front of them. So I had so much lab work watching little tiny changes have an effect on different audiences that uh, I have, uh, uh, you know, sometimes academics don't take me very seriously, but I have more lab work than they'll ever be able yeah. to have. A lot of charts in that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you ever get the book or look at the book, just ignore the charts because the, the <laughs> writing is fun. Austin, you know? Austin and I both have the book. Great book. That's uh, right. Get uh, it on Amazon. Yeah. Awesome. And get my other book, <laughs> The Adventures of Mrs. Jesus. That's just right. Because. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, the two things, it's the, the, the resume as a, as a whole and, uh, and that book. I feel like those were the things I was chasing when I was eight years old, is validation that I could be funny and then understanding what comedy was. And those two things I think I, I did to my satisfaction. Maybe in 15 years we can get a breakdown of drama. <laughs> yeah. I just take all the joke stuff out of my mind. <laughs> there um, it is. But what dramas have you written? I did, uh, I did a sci-fi show called uh, Threshold. It was on CBS for... Uh, yeah, I've watched that. You're kidding. No, I worked on Threshold? that. Threshold? Yeah. Who started that? Uh, what was it? Carla Gugino started that. Look it up. Was there... And Peter Dinklage. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Oh, Peter Dinklage. Really? Yes. Oh, okay. Brent Spiner. That was a really oh, good Brent show. Oh, Brent Spiner. Funny, okay, yeah. yeah. It was fun. And I uh, worked on that. And then um, I did a show called Jericho on uh, CBS. And that was a post-apocalyptic drama. I have heard of that show, and yeah. And I find that, by the way, when you're writing comedy... You know, if you're if you're one of those kind of comedy writers that writes really good jokes, but you're not great with story or character motivation, structure, blah blah blah, you really can't make the transition to uh, drama because you're busy writing jokes. But if you are, if you've developed skills in storytelling and character motivation and you know that kind of thing, then you can transition over to drama, and you find that in some ways it's much easier because you don't have to be funny every few lines. You can actually have people emoting, and you could have serious situations happening and, and you use all the same tools narratively that you use in comedy only you don't have that pressure of being funny every few lines mm -hmm. so I, I i enjoyed that you know it was it was a very different experience for me and then after that i went back into comedy you got you went on your vacation went on my little comedy vacation they pulled you back in yeah they yeah they did it was from it was from my no i worked on a show called better off ted yeah and i was fired from that and then uh, Why? uh, uh two Story? reasons well it was uh Let's say I was on there for the first season, and then ABC, and the showrunner, who I really like a lot, he and I got along great, but we had very different sort of styles of writing and and uh, storytelling. And so we clashed a little bit, but, you know, it's, he was, you know, it's not like, 
I fought for things, but uh, but we just didn't really see eye to eye. But you know, it was fine. And there's a lot of material on the show that I did that I'm I was proud of. And uh, ABC said to him, "We'll pick up the show for a second season, but we need to cut down this budget." I think I was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> um, and as soon as he heard the word cut, I think uh, my face appeared in his head. <laughs> and he called me up. And I, I had been thinking, how can I leave this show because it isn't working? And then he called me up and, and fired me. And I, I burst out of laughter because I was so surprised by it. But then, yeah, he was right to let me go. I was not right for the show. And the next, the, literally the next day I was offered Modern Family, which oh, would wow. not have happened had wow. I been on Better Off Tape. You would have had to oh. turn that down? Yeah. Because you're under contract. Yeah. Jeez. Modern Family was like a game-changing show. I mean, it changed yeah. the way America thought of families, right? Yeah, it was It was uh, also... More modern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never thought... Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. So, uh, but uh, they had just shot the pilot, and uh, so they were staffing up to do the series, and they asked me aboard, and uh, I never looked back. But uh, here's the thing. As I, there, no matter how long you've done it, there will be times that you land on a show where it is not the show for you, even if you want it to be, it just doesn't work. And we had a writer once on Frasier, and this writer was a, a really good writer and had written well on other shows, but this was just not the show for him. It was just not the same point of view or the style of writing or something. And it was very frustrating for him because he, know, he knew he'd done well on other shows, and he just couldn't, and none of us could put our finger on what it was, but he ended up doing one season, maybe a season and a half, and just leaving. And I, I've I'm like that now. I think, I think you know, I'll be very confessional. I'm working on a show now where I, I don't think I'm the right fit for this particular show. Well, I was going to ask you because um, or the Orville, yeah. Seth MacFarlane has a yeah. very specific uh, style and voice. Oh, yeah. And he's, look, the guy's a genius. I've been working with him now for you know, a few months. And I just watch him come up with this stuff. And, he's, and, and the way he does things, very decisive, very sharp. And um, I'm contributing, but I don't think I'm contributing, like, like I say, like that other writer on Frasier, I've contributed well to other shows. And I know what I've been able to do. And on this show, I feel like I'm still in a foreign country a little bit. And, uh, and, you know, it and I have to remind myself, it doesn't take away from what I can do to say, I don't know that I'm the right fit for this show. Now, it might be that... Because it's sci-fi? I don't know that about the. It could be the sci-fi. It could be part of it is threshold. Yeah, right? but yeah, although, yeah, you although did, you did two sci-fi's though, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, although, although, you know. like this, this one is like, for example, for many of the other writers on the show, it's second nature for them to pitch lines like, "Well, what if we, uh, what if we enhance the image and see if there's an ionic uh, signature oh, yeah. that we can you know, <laughs> the cross cross reference against known aliens in this quadrant of the galaxy?" Right. I'm used to. Uh, can I get some pie from the fridge? That's yeah. like the stuff that I write. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. This stuff that's absolutely second nature to these other writers, I stumble when I start saying like a techno babble. Sure. The show, my mouth starts to stumble because it's not used to saying those words, and so, and that then it hurts my confidence. But um, but you know, I, I look at it and I go, you know, I I I don't know that I'm providing the kind of firepower that somebody sitting in this chair should for this show, and so it might so, you know, there might just be one season here. But uh, but the thing is, and I, I find a lot of writers if they find a show where they don't fit. They'll get very frustrated, and they might blame the showrunner and say, "Look, I don't know why you're not you're being this to me, you're being that to me." And they have to. I think you should always have a decent sense of self-assessment. You should always be able to go, "Okay, look, this I'm I'm a decent writer. This is not the place for me. It's not that I'm a failure. It's just that this isn't a fit." You know. Um, but also, as like a young writer, and I'm just mainly speaking as a young actor, some sometimes you think. I want to make this work. This is my shot. I don't have the pedigree of experience. Yes, I it's it's yes. When when that happens, when you're a young writer, it's terrifying. 
you know, and, and even if you're on a show where eventually you fit, uh, if you're starting out, uh, it, there's nothing more terrifying than being at a big table with a bunch of people who've been writing for years and you're the new person. Yeah. And I've, I've even taught a class <coughs> once on this because so many writing courses, it's all about TV writing. It's all about getting that spec script and all about getting that agent and all about getting in the writer's room. And there's nobody that teaches you what to do once you're there. Mm. And there are so many mistakes people make, you know, like, for example, fighting for things. You know, you can raise your objection, but then once it's put down, you stop. Because your job is not to write the best TV you can. Your job is to make your executive producer happy. And sometimes your executive producer and you are aligned with what makes the best show. And like, sometimes you cut page three. Some, some, almost always, apparently. But sometimes it's important. Somebody said, yeah, sometimes you need it. I don't know. There's no <laughs> rule. Um, but, uh, you know, so you have to, you have to make uh, your exec happy. So you, you don't fight for things. And you learn how to... Um, when you're talking too much, when you're not talking enough, you have to know to read the room. You know, we have, uh, there are some people that will do the, like some of the mistakes I'll point out or things to avoid, the endless preamble. Okay, so you're looking for a joke and then you kind of go, oh, okay. And then you pitch and you go, okay, so, okay, we need this joke here for page three. And uh, so I was thinking, you know, there's this time that my brother and I, when we were kids, my mom threw out this washing machine mm. and he decided to put me in some of that. And you tell the whole story. Get to the and joke. And finally you're like, so I was thinking this character might say, eh. and it's like, we don't need the behind the scenes of your joke because right. you just blew five minutes of the day. <laughs> and also if the joke doesn't work, you've really now made people yeah. annoyed because there's all that for something that didn't work. Uh, I r only rarely run into the opposite of this, which is the endless uh, coda, which is, okay, what if the character said blah, 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 blah? Because then you could do another character said that, and that would lead to a scene where blah, 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 blah. And then we build to a, and like, we just need the joke on page five. <laughs> you know, we don't right. need the whole rest of the thing rebroken. We just need page five. So uh, there's uh, lots of, uh, and then there's the people who put themselves down because they're not confident. Oh, this is going to suck, but... And then they, they pitch the thing. A way to build like, it up. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I'll pitch this. This isn't going to be any good. But yeah. I'm like, and I watch people just torpedo themselves. And then in a way, they're torturing themselves. But when you are starting off, there's no way around that kind of self-torture where you, you know, you drive home at the end of the day going, well, I got one thing in the script or I got two things. I didn't get anything today. Yeah. And nobody else is counting the number of things you've contributed except for you. Uh, because it's, you know, you you feel your whole career is hinged on every single thing that you pitch in the room. And and uh, that's what I was like in 1985 when I was starting. And then um, and lately on the Orville, I'll drive home going, well, I got two things in. And I go, oh, my God, what, what's happened to me? <laughs> what is an appropriate number of things? Like 10? Would that be the I think, you know, consistency. You know, even if you get two things a day, at least it's two things a day. But if it's like yeah. some days it's none, and then other days it's three, and I get this one thing, but it was a big idea. And I get this one thing that was just a line. But, it was a, you know, and you're just constantly hoping that whatever you, at least there's something in the positive column that you, that is, there's some impact you're having on the finished script. You know, there are some shows that would look very different if I had not been on them. And then, for example, the Orville that would look exactly the same if I'd never showed <laughs> up. If I'd put a mannequin yeah. in my seat, well, <laughs> the show would look exactly the same. Is, is Dan here? Yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. A, he's in the back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You got that pie in the fridge bit on that. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I just, I lean on that. That's why. <laughs> how, how much is Seth MacFarlane present in, in this show? Well, Produces it. He stars. I'm in talking it. about in the writers' room. I in guess. the writers' room. Uh, well, you mean when he, when we actually do the work, uh, he is he is right there and he's focused and he's very quick with the yes to this, no to that. And um, there are certain um, uh, 
certain perks, like he doesn't, we don't get notes from the studio or the network. Now, a lot of writers' rooms are there till midnight and beyond yeah. because you have to do a whole rewrite because some person at the network or the studio said, throw yeah. out the script or make it more like something we've seen before or whatever they right. say. Uh, and Seth doesn't deal with that. So it's just, oh. so that's easy. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and he knows what he wants. This is, it is one of the few shows where it is purely his vision. This is just it. We're there to help him realize his vision for the show. That includes the, the writing, the look of the show, uh, the music, the direction, he, the acting. I mean, he, it is his baby. And so uh, um, in that regard, we're all very lucky because he is very uh, sure about what his vision is. And, and that means it saves a lot of time. And sometimes you'll have a showrunner who isn't quite sure what his or her version is for the show, uh, vision yeah. is for the show. And so as they're finding it, you're sort of going down dead ends and you're pitch and then the studio has to weigh in, no, it's more like this. And, and then if that person is kind of weak in their vision, they'll listen to everybody or they'll try to make so many people happy, they make no people happy. So it's a real advantage to have people who know what their show is. Um, and uh, I was lucky to work with people along the way that were like that. The guys who do Modern Family, they didn't have to do notes, cheers and Frasier. They they just not even season one. They didn't season one, it was they there were a few notes at the beginning, but the show was such a hit right off the bat that almost instantly ABC said Keep the same yeah, formula. Yeah. yeah. They would do it was funny because uh, uh, for a while, I don't know how it works now, because I've been away from the show for six years, but I was there for the first five. And for a while ABC, you know, they would want to know what the upcoming stories were that we were writing. And Chris and Steve, the guys who run the show, got tired of telling them every week. And so they decided every writer who writes an episode, when ABC wants to know, you have to pitch it to ABC or write a little outline of it or whatever. And I, I was very passive, aggressive, and lazy. That's a bad combination. <laughs> and so if I was doing an episode, I would hear that you know ABC wanted to hear the, the, the pitch for it. And they'd set up a time to call, and I just wouldn't be around. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to call them back. And, and, days w and I would just <laughs> never call them back ever, you know, and... Uh, so um, and there's a schedule that you got to yeah, shoot on yeah, Monday. Yeah, yeah. The thing yeah. is, yeah, there had there was a table reading. They would show up at the table reading, not knowing what it was because I hadn't told, told them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or there was one time early on, you had to write a synopsis of your episode, and which I did once, and then I just never did it again. I avoided work like crazy, and uh, <laughs> I wrote a synopsis, and then I didn't even stop at the end of my show. I started to synopsize Cougar Town, which was the show that followed us, and I started to write a synopsis of their episode. Like, I would have gone right up to the, right. the 11 o'clock news, you know. I was going to just do the whole <laughs> night for okay. them. So here, you want a synopsis? Um, and do, they, do the execs give you a jovial look? Like, are they... You know, they, they, they do... You know, here's the thing. As, as much as, you know, you can complain about the whole process and everything, taken as individuals, I've actually gotten along with almost every executive. They're wonderful people as people. It's a, it's a process that is built to frustrate writers, and I think everybody knows that, the executives too. Um, but, uh, but they well, just make them more likable. <laughs> well, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, they can make them, oh God. They can go on forever. You know, they, the whole thing, a character has to be likable, and then you have to define likable because that's different to everybody. You know? That's a common note. See, what we're talking about here, you at home, is that, uh, that that's a very, very common note uh, that you get on sitcoms is make the character likable because if people don't like they won't watch and that's not entirely true um, they will often watch characters that they don't like you watch like dramas they're, they're constantly watching evil people you know um, the characters don't have to be lovable Archie Bunker was not always likable but he was you couldn't take your eyes off him the thing is you, you have to make them uh, someone with whom you can empathize you don't have to like them you have to relate to them and if you're relating to the worst parts of yourself that's still fine you're relating to make them interesting not likable 
you know, but there are some executives that take that to the that note to the end zone. So if the character says something even the slightest bit sarcastically, you know, it's oh no 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 don't you have to be nice and say it with a smile, make him you know I, I don't like him when he says things that are mean. You know, it's like no people will watch. I promise you. And mm. what happens is the shows get so inoffensive that they become offensively inoffensive, and then people stop watching it because there's nothing that challenges their brain. And hopefully you get a showrunner that can understand that you're going to play your game and then you'll have to volley these these likable notes as best you can. Yeah, it's it's a tricky line because if you take every note, if you take every note and your show fails, it's not like you get extra credit next time because you followed every note. You're just a person with a failed show. And so you're <laughs> less likely to get, so you don't get you know any credit for that. You know, and then if you don't take any notes, your show might succeed, it might fail, but at least it succeeded or failed on your own. Uh, um because of you, yeah, your own terms, thanks. But um, it's a, it's a it's a tricky thing to try to do that. I've had mixed success uh, with taking notes. I, I take notes to a point, and then I get impatient and petulant, and I think <laughs> that's probably hurt me. But uh, that's all right. Can you give us any stories from the modern family? As days? far as as far as just notes, uh, in saying? the writers' room or working with the actors or whatever you remember. Oh gosh, I was drunk the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it was great. You know, I I had having worked on other big shows. I came along on the, both of Cheers and Frasier and Newhart. Those had been on a while when I came to them. They'd been on for six, seven years. You only pick successful shows that have yeah. Exactly. I'm no idiot. <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, but Modern Family is the first one that I'd been on, which was not only a success, but a success right out of the gate. Now, now Big Bang, which was hugely successful, wasn't really a huge success until it went into syndication and people sort of discovered it. I know yeah. I did. I hadn't seen it until it was in syndication. I'd see like two episodes back to back and I'd laugh and go, that was really funny. TBS. Yeah. And um, so with uh, Modern Family, I had not been in, in that kind of like eye of the hurricane, uh, you know, really ever. And so uh, it was crazy. It was uh, for a while, all the cast members were on every magazine cover. Remember magazines? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was pretty great. We were all pretty full of ourselves back then. <laughs> I think that show single handedly got gay marriage legalized. Do you know what it? I think Will it didn't help. Will and Grace, yeah, yeah, buddy. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. We with uh, I'll tell you the difference I, in my mind, and I don't know that I'm right. That's just how I think of it. Is that um, with Mitch and Cam, the gay couple on Modern Family? The first year, we didn't have them really being physical with each other. They didn't kiss or anything, which by the end of the first year, we were getting letters from all these gay advocacies, you know, saying, why, why don't you have these characters kiss? Um, and you have the straight characters kiss. You know, Phil and Claire would kiss all the time. But, you know, we didn't have, you know, uh, Jay and Gloria kiss. We only got one letter. That was from, from, uh, from Ed O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> where, where are the sex scenes? Yeah. Come on. Um, but uh, we, so... And then the beginning of the second season is when we let them, you know, kiss. And we'd start. And it w I don't know if that was completely conscious on our part, but I, I think retroactively you look back. And, and I think the thinking was let we didn't want to be that Hollywood show that was shoving our agenda at people. You know, we didn't want to be off-putting to people who were sort of on the fence or whose minds could be changed right at the bat. Oh, there's Hollywood showing, yes, there's the gay characters kissing, they're liberal, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we hopefully allowed people to get to know these characters as a loving couple first, and parents first, and then a gay couple, you know. So, uh, and I think that really helped. It, it, it really kind of allowed people to let these characters in their homes. And then there were people who wouldn't otherwise have said this, saying, you know, maybe you know, gay people should be allowed to be married. 
yeah. you know? And so, and, and we definitely the show got hundreds and hundreds of letters from people saying, oh, well, my parents who never would have allowed this are now saying it's not so bad, or I feel differently, or whatever. So I think we did go some way toward helping that. Our timing was like right politically for that, but also because we slow rolled it in a way and didn't just, you know, boom in your face with it. You, know? mm. you knew you had time. It, it would happen. Well, we, uh, you know, you can never really bank on having time, but it, it worked out that way. Right. Um, that's the thing is like a lot of times people will do a pilot and they'll come up with some great idea for the show. And they go, you know, let's save that for like episode three or four. Well, you might not have an episode three or four, so throw right. everything you can at the pilot. Right. Mm. I think. You're an idea factory, not an idea, idea warehouse. They'll keep coming. <laughs> wow. Yes. I had never thought of that. That's true. Hey, I'm going to coin that. Although there every now and again, I will have an idea that I sit on for years and waiting for the right time. There was an, uh, Now's the perfect time. Oh, I, well, I had, well, there's, like, for example, uh, I'll give you two examples. One is there was a line for Cheers that I thought of in the shower one day, and I couldn't find a place for it in the script. And the whole year went by, and another year, and like the like three years in, we were looking for a joke one night, and I popped this joke in, and we got a big laugh, and we, we put it in. And it was a joke. I've seen the joke now on T-shirts and coffee mugs, but they always screw it up. The joke was that, uh, you know, on the show, Cliff, the mailman, lived with his mom and didn't have a girlfriend and everything. And uh, at some point in the show, someone asks what a Freudian slip is, and he says, that's when you say one thing, but you're thinking about a mother. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I see that now on T-shirts, but they always say, uh, it's when you say one thing, but you're thinking about your mother, which it makes the joke less funny. It has to sound as close to the source. Oh. A mother sounds more like another Ano- yeah. than your mother sounds like another. So they kind of screw it. I get really well, mad. I'll see a t-shirt like that. I'll punch whoever's <laughs> right in the face. That's but like a common... Bring out the shirt. Bring out the shirt. That is like a common uh, joke now. But that's how they get out of copyright infringement. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they copyright every word. Um, but... Uh, but that was one I'd been sitting on for three years. And uh, and what was interesting was when I pitched it, it was a late night and we were stuck on a joke for this one script. And to get to the joke, well, well, first of all, everyone laughed and we put it in and there was one writer, a guy named David Lloyd, who had been doing TV forever. He wrote for Johnny Carson. He wrote for Mary Tyler Moore. He was like a legend. And he was the one that looked at me and he said, you've been saving that. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew, and the reason he knew was because structurally to get to the joke, I had to have a character make a Freudian slip and then have someone point it out and then have someone ask what a Freudian slip is to get to that line. It had nothing yeah. to do with the story or the flow of the narrative at that moment. I had to create this little guest room of a thing to happen to get to that thing. And he knew because of that extra step in structure that I was grafting it onto the script. I w- it wasn't part of it. It was grafted into the scene. Yeah. And he saw that right away, which I w- was always really impressed by. And how... I mean, I know Jerry Seinfeld, he says he carries a notepad around with him yeah. to, to do jokes. Is that Well, every now and again, I mean, I, I, the animated short that I did called The Fan and the Flower, look up The Fan and the Flower. You'll like it. Um, and then let us know in the comments section. Yes, please. Oh, yeah, The Fan and the Flower. It's very sweet, you know. Uh, but that was, that was based on an idea that I had when I was 18 that was coupled with another idea I had when I was 35. So I was 35, and I had this idea that, that popped into my head. I needed an ending for the idea, and this thing I'd thought of when I was 18, you like your head's like this junk drawer and it's like oh my god these two pieces fit together and you made something um but as far as carrying material there's always a bit i wanted to do for modern family and we tried to put it in here and there we never did it i still think we can do it (laughs) although now i'm gonna blow it by telling you is that i wanted to do a thing where uh 
Maybe I shouldn't tell it because we might still do it. Uh, There's only a few episodes left that they're going to shoot. But well, you don't work on Modern Family. I know. I know the people there. <laughs> I know. And every now and again, I send them a note saying, do this bit. Oh, cool. Um, nice. but you can just tell us. I'll tell you guys. You won't yeah. tell anyone. But uh, we're Phil <laughs> It's okay. Nobody listens to this podcast. It's okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> um, but uh, Phil is grocery shopping, and uh, Claire is talking to a friend of hers and saying, well, I, I took a big risk letting Phil do the grocery shopping. He never gets anything right, and he always needs help and blah, blah, blah. And at that point, Phil calls her about something unrelated from anybody who's at the grocery store. Calls her for something unrelated. And hello, Phil. Yeah, it's Phil. And, um, and he's having trouble hearing her. And he says, there's no cell reception. And, she's, and Claire says to her friend, he says there's no cell reception. And then <laughs> and she's telling me, oh, are you standing by the produce? And he thinks she's meaning about the get, getting bars. Uh, yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I can stand by the produce. And it just gets crazier and crazier. I like so, it. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> it's a good modern family bit. And, um, good. and I had an ending for it in the whole thing. But, uh, but we, and we tried, I, we put it in a script in the second season, but it got cut for time. And, but, but every now and again, I will bug them and say, do the celery section. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice. Uh, I forget what I was going to ask. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you a. Uh, question from an actor point of view yes. on set and I'm not talking I know this heavily depends on the director and the shoot schedule you have in terms of your short on time but from a, like a co-star guest star point of view if if you see an actor wanting to give like an alt line or you know slightly changing as a writer do you like that well, usually that happens in run-throughs, or re- I'm sorry, in rehearsal. Right. And so that actor can work with the director. And if the director says, now the director might say, oh, that's good, hold on to that. And when the writers come, you know, we'll ask them if they can try an alt, you can try an alt on that line. Well, when, or you, do when, it. when you say rehearsal, do you mean like right before you're about to shoot, like that same day? or? A, a oh, I'm thinking like during the, during Ta- the week. Table read or something? The, I'm thinking like during the week. Oh, okay. Table read, stick with the, what's in the script. Okay. Don't ad-lib during the table read at all. Because, you know, we really need to know if right. stuff works or doesn't work and we can go from there. Yeah. However, during the week or, or during the rehearsals before you shoot, I, I guess, you know what, I should be clear. On a single cam, you're doing the rehearsal and then you shoot the scene. Right. The rehearsal, shoot the scene. So you're talking about multi-cam. But the multi-cam, you're just rehearsing all, all week. Okay. But even with the, the single cam, it's during rehearsals that you get to try things uh, and and talk to the director. Maybe And, and usually one of the writers will be on the stage. Um and uh, so you could, that's that's what rehearsal's for, is to find out what works, see if there's a way to, it gets a little more collaborative in rehearsal. But then when the writers come to see the run-through of it or the finished thing, um, you know, it, it, it's always different. Everyone has different rules about how malleable you can be on that. But generally speaking, it can be pretty collaborative. Um, but you're pretty malleable? Yeah, I think Collaborative? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and also, like, with Modern Family... We would shoot the scene and get it the way we'd all decided, you know, because we'll be there, you know, say, hey, say this on an exit, because as you're working on their blocking, it might change some of the words here and there anyway, but, or the actor might come up with some great joke, and, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And, and we can be very playful on the set of Modern Family, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, put that bit in, that'd, that'd be kind of fun. So you're finding stuff along the way. Um, and usually, once you've kind of nailed down what the scene is, you do it that way, get it on film, and then do a couple of extra takes if you have time where the actors can ad lib things. You know, and some of the actors on Modern Family would just ad-lib these wonderful things, often at the ends of the scenes or just, like, in, in between stuff, and a lot of it stayed in. Gotcha. But uh, um, there are some showrunners that will be dead against that. But, we, uh, you know, like I say, it's like if you're a good showrunner, you're open to magic happening and just grabbing it because that will always make you look like a better writer even though you didn't do it. Nice. And part of writing is recognizing magic and incorporating it. Have you ever had situations where uh, actors are being a little more difficult? Like in terms of like they don't really want to sit. They're like, I don't like that line. And if yeah. so, how do you how do you typically handle that situation? Um, yeah, sometimes. I mean, I had to carry. I did a pilot once, and uh, 
and it was going really well. And <laughs> there was one actor who said, I don't think my character would say that. And I said, mine would, uh, because <laughs> at that time it was still my character. <laughs> um, but, uh, and well, what do you say? Um, he said, got it. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, I, I did argue with someone on the script once. And here's where I was a total jerk. I stole a line. I'll tell you the line. But uh, um, someone was saying, isn't it funnier? It was on a drama. Isn't it funnier if I do it this way? I said, I think it's funny if you do it that way. I don't know. I just think it's funnier. And I said, I can't hear you. I have six Emmys in my ear. <laughs> which, by the way, which was not my line. It was a line Tony Thomas apparently said. Uh, he was from Whit Thomas. He said that to an executive at one point. But I thought, oh, that's good. But I mean, that's true, though. That, that, is, that is a good, yeah. What well, can you say at that point? Yeah. All right, I'll be like, I'll be yeah. like crafty working on the line. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, and then I felt bad because I think tears came in her eyes. I was like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said, let's, let's do it both ways. No, I shouldn't do it. And then it was like, <laughs> do it that way. Do it your way. And then eventually, it's just, she did. Wait you a win. Minute. She won. Hey, that's how she gets you. That's how she gets me. I get them at craft service, and they trick me the other way. <laughs> Speaking of uh, specifically co-stars and guest stars when they come on to set, have you ever um, if somebody's like you just said, if you know somebody makes a mistake, you kind of have, have to have a talk with them. But if somebody does really well, do you ever get with the other producers and writers and just go, man, we should maybe write more stuff for this person? Yeah, absolutely. We'll have people that are on for like a one-shot thing. This happens. I mean, throughout TV history. Uh, throughout any kind of narrative history, actually, the Urkel was someone who was just supposed to be there for one episode, oh. and then he took over the show. Drew Carey's secretary, forget her name. Oh Mimi. yes, Mimi, right? Mimi, Mimi. Right. Uh, you know, even in the old comic strips, Popeye was a character. There was a comic strip called Thimble Theater with this very wide cast, and then they needed a sailor for for the guy who was making it. Needed a sailor for this one adventure. He put the thing and created this character, talked funny, and had big arms. And people wrote in, said, "Who's this guy? Who's this guy?" And then it became Popeye who took over the script. But mm. then often you have to be open to that. And um, that's happened where we would have, on just about every show I've worked on, you'd have some bit player come in and kind of nail it, and then a few weeks later you'd be going, you know who would be great at that? We should bring that character in, just, you know, whatever, and you'd just feather them in again. Um, I don't think I've been on one where a character like that takes over the show, but I've been in that where we've brought people back over and over because they nailed it. Usually if they're going to take over the show, that's the spinoff. Yeah, or, right. or well, with like Urkel, it just became the show, or like True. Fonzie, okay. it became the show. It became the know? show. Um, but, uh, you know, you just, again, you just have to be open for it. You can't just be so married to what you have in your mind. You know, you, you've, you've got to plot out in your head. Like at the beginning of a season, we'll kind of figure out what the arc of the season is. We want Mitch and Cam to have another baby, whatever it's going to be, and they're going to adopt somebody, and you create your season to go around that arc. But during the season, you have to be open to the possibility of something coming along that makes you see that there's a different road that might be better. And so by the end of the season, you have a whole different ending that you started with, but you need some sort of blueprint to start with anyway. Um, just because a lot of things, like maybe we get cast for sometimes, like the co-star and guest stars, besides when you show up and you're a co-star and guest star, as from an executive producer's point of view, um, besides obviously nailing the part and learning your lines and doing a great performance, what would be, do you have any advice for people, um, co-stars and guest stars coming in? Like what else can you do to do a great job? Uh, really, really. How I can think, you stand out? Just yeah. shut up and do your job. Yeah, no, it's kind of, <laughs> you kind of nailed it by saying, come on and just look, I, it sounds stupid. Be amazing. Yeah. Just be great at what you do. And, um, and hopefully there'll be room for you to do it again. You know, the thing is a good executive producer always has an eye open for something, like I said, unexpected, um, or something that, you know, oh, this could work in that episode. We, we've had a modern family. I remember we had, a, we had a guy come in who was like Cam's rival. 
uh, at, at the, the choir that he used to sing in or something. And he was so snarky and drippy with his line that we brought him back for another episode or two. Who? Who played that guy? I, you know what? It's, it's been 10 years. Yeah, I feel I've seen that episode. Yeah. But I forget. Yeah. But, uh, but we kind of, we really enjoyed uh, what he did, so we brought him in for another episode. And, and the thing is, if you have a long-running show that has a, a, a lot of episodes per season, Modern Family is doing 22, 24 episodes a season, they're going to need stories. So everything is a possible, so everything that happened to me, every conversation, is there a story in here? And so when a character comes in and gives them a little tiny bit of something that they maybe weren't expecting, or you see the chemistry between that new character and who you have, because you're always looking for stories, well, maybe there's another story where this can come in handy. You know, I, I need to use stuff. You were just you were just chewing up every kind of bit of information to make it into story. Now, that's a little bit less true in the days of streaming now that people do 10 episodes, 11 episodes, whatever it's going to be. And often those are all written in advance. And so they can't really take advantage of these unexpected bits of magic that happen in episode two and three because they've got all 10 of them written. And they're probably shooting them in a way, so they're shooting all 10 at once like some huge movie. Mm. That's the Orville, right? You guys Uh, wrote all those? Well, yeah, we'll write those all in advance. Uh, But, you know, often like the streaming shows are like that too. So um, it's a little easier on the network shows, the shows that have a big order, because, again, everyone has their eye out for anything that can create a fun scene in a future episode. So, th- you know, people are hungry for, for anything that will give them another script. Because it can be, we get desperate. What, what about the opposite? What about, like, these, these uh, guest spots that actors come into, and let's say they're just not delivering? Like, they're not doing what you would hope for? It's just not really working out? Is there situations where you're like, hey, do we need to get somebody else? Like, what... Has, has that ever happened? Yeah, yeah. There are, there are times that we've brought in big names for shows and thinking uh, in our heads, the big names are doing what they usually do and it's going to nail this part. And then they come in and it doesn't work. And sometimes you have to let them go. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes you work around them. You just have so much respect for them. You yeah. kind of work around it. Just, it's one episode and then right. they're never going to come back. <laughs> um, but other times it, it, the, the role is so pivotal or it really depends on a certain kind of delivery or attitude that the actor isn't giving you and you have to let them go even though they're big names. That's got to be an awkward conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't... Yeah. Until they're aging. Yeah, yeah but even so, I, if it's something like that, I tend to, if I'm running a show, I tend to... to get on the phone and talk to the actor. We had an episode of Frasier where um, a guest actor came in. He was doing a perfectly fine job, but we realized we were long that we, we cut a scene that was largely this character. Now, he still had other stuff to do, but I called him myself and because I know people get all paranoid. And I said, look, I just want you to know you're doing a great job. This is purely about page count at this time, and this is the thing we can lift. And, uh, and I mean, he appreciated that. I, I, think, I think it's good if you can actually talk to the people you have to let go personal. That was I nice. don't like to just do it through agents. I think yeah. it gets kind of icky that way. And then he yelled at you for the next five minutes. I get furious. <laughs> I was like, where was this in rehearsal? Yeah. He could have used this. Yeah. You know? Sees the episode. He's like, here's my big part. What yeah. happened? I know. That's the thing a lot of people do. A lot of people yeah. will go and they'll film something. And then the night it's on, they will have all their friends over and they got pizza. And, oh, quiet, quiet, it's on. And then their scene is gone. Yep. You know, I can't imagine anything worse, you know. Yeah. So I, I kind of try to let them know. Very awkward. Very awkward. Cool. Um, Dan, after the Orville, are you... You, you always make the joke. He you're keeps mo- topping himself. He can't even say what's next. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, go to Cleveland and pull the coffin lid over me, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. not, do you have any plans to produce your own pilots and stuff? Like, No, I have before. I had a show that was on for a summer and a show that was on for like 15 episodes uh, back in the 90s. But, uh, I, you know, at, now I don't. A lot of writers do. It's like, get that development deal. Get a show on, you know. Uh, Why TV, not? TV, TV isn't what it was when I started. 
Uh, you are literally living in a different time uh, than I am culturally. Now, when some, like for example, something you never hear in American houses anymore is somebody yelling, it's starting, and then the thunder of feet to get in front of the TV. Right. Yeah. You know, so you wouldn't miss a second of what came out of that magic box. Um, it's not that anymore. You know, People don't rearrange their schedules really for, for things. I mean, they'll, they'll do event TV, like when they were doing Game of Thrones or whatever, but at the same time, it's not like it was. And back when I started, back in the day, <laughs> uh, there was, I there were only three networks. You know, yeah. Fox was like yeah. new when I started. They weren't even broadcasting every night uh, of the week, and uh, so you know, if a TV was on, likely it was on something that you you wrote. So I mean, back in the day, if I wrote an episode of Cheers um, on a Thursday night between nine and nine thirty, you'd walk down any street in America and you'd see the little TVs in the window, and, and you knew half of them were watching something you'd written, or you'd hear yeah. people talking about or quoting you the next day in a coffee shop, and it was like a very nice feeling, right. and. TV was very important to me when I was growing up, as I felt very sort of a, a bit isolated in my life. And uh, so TV was kind of this place where, oh, my God, grownups are writing silly things. You know, I, I want to be there because the people where I was growing up, it's like, you can't be funny for a living. <laughs> and um, oh, it was wretched, actually. But uh, hashtag Ohio. Riverside. Yeah, yeah, Riverside. Oh, Riverside, you tried so hard. <laughs> you didn't. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so I, um, you know, so it was very important to me. And now. And I did it, and I'm, like I say, I'm very proud of it, but there's a feeling of, and after 35 years, you're kind of like, I did it. You know, it's kind of like, can, yeah. I, can I be done now? You want to push the plate in the middle and say, oh, can I be done now? Can I leave the table? But, f like, for uh, like if you for those of you that follow Dan on social media, very political, staunch Trump <laughs> supporter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, very political, uh, democratically. Um, you could do a political show, which seems like you're very do you know passionate. Do you know what? I... I've actually been offered chances to do political shows, but I think the market is flooded with them. And I think I, I think we are, as a culture, oversaturated with all the politics. I mean, we really need to to to, to get away from it a, a little bit. I and mean, we need to stay aware, obviously, and be active, yes. But um, news has become just a, a way to peddle the drug of outrage. You know, it, it, even the news that I watch, it's five minutes of headline and 15, uh, 55 right. minutes of people shouting at each other so that I can get mad. Uh, because then I will keep watching, or then I will talk about it, and then I will talk to other people. And the media is our dealer, you know, whether it's Fox or CNN or whatever. Yeah. They, I'm addicted. They, I, I'm totally addicted. And so they they make trillions of dollars, you know, peddling outrage, making us mad at the other side. And they collect our money. We get mad. Everybody's happy. It's just all opinions now. Everything's just an opinion. Yeah. There's yeah. no there's no one just telling you here here's the facts, here's the yeah. news. Well, there well, it is, but you don't believe it. Right. Yeah, but yeah, you're yeah, like, who do I who yeah. does, who's accurate now? I it's know. Like it's it's it's. It's the death of truth. I, and I was at a dinner party some years ago, and uh, the host was a scientist, and he was a really great guy, and he would always have these dinner parties of different walks of life, and it was always interesting. And he asked us one time, what's the big change, the first big change that will define the 21st century? And fortunately, I was the last one to answer, so I got to listen to all the people. And I also got a chance to think about it, and people were talking about nanotechnology and whatever. And, uh, and AI. And I said, I think it's going to be the death of truth. And the reason I said it was because recently, at that point, uh, George Bush had run for his George W. Bush had run for his second term, and I was in a online argument with a friend of mine in Ohio, and I would say to her, "You can't vote for this guy; he's an idiot." And here, I'd send her all kinds of articles, and she'd say, "Are you kidding? He's terrific!" And she would send me all kinds of articles back about how great he was. And on a screen, her articles looked just as valid mm. and professional as mine did. And I began to realize we will do this forever. And and if someone else has a third idea, they can do it forever. That we all carry around now our own referee. There is no source we can go to and argue, and that person tells us who's right and who's wrong, and we all agree. 
and I realized that, that no one will be able to understand what the truth is anymore. So I said it at this dinner party, it's the death of truth. And it took a couple years till the Trump, uh, you know, becoming president that it really became a thing. Oh my God, truth, truth is disappearing, which is true. It is happening. You know, now we've got deep fake videos. And so now we can't even depend on that. And so you think, well, what's the future going to be, you know? And we used to say, well, the, you know, history is not going to be kind to Trump. History is going to, you know, history doesn't work like it used to, you know, because history was always written by the winners, the people who had charge of the media. But now with the internet, history will be written by everybody. Everyone with a keyboard will write their history. Mm -hmm. And different lobby groups will have a vested interest in kids learning their version of history. And so they'll want their history taught in the classroom alongside of this history. Right. You know? and so at Trump University. At Trump University. <laughs> there'll be a different history than's taught at UCLA. You know? uh, and so we'll teach history theory. If we can't agree on what's happening in the present, how on earth are future people going to right. agree on what happened in the past? You know, we're screwed, basically, is what I'm saying. Sounds like we need a TV show. <laughs> I don't even remember TV. No one will. <laughs> Just remember deep fake. Sounds like we need to reelect Trump to save the day. I'm not sure that's the lesson. Ah. <laughs> Make America great again? No. All right. Uh, big question, though, actually. So, obviously, years of experience, the Emmys, the Oscar noms, all the hit TV shows. What are you most proud of? Um, this podcast. We've been running right. this block. Uh, this, yeah, this no, podcast. I asked and that, that ends uh, it. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> Uh, just Your uh, just body of work. Yeah, just, yeah. There's some, some jokes and things that I did that, that uh, you know, kind of got into the culture, which is nice. Um, on a personal level, I'm just sort of, I'm quietly proud, hopefully quietly proud of, you know, all of it. You know, it's nice. To, uh, I'm lucky to have been there. You know, I'm lucky to have met the people I did and have the experiences I did. You're still there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, more or less. Uh, <laughs> but I got to, and the thing that I quite liked was meeting people who influenced me. So I, I met Bob Hope when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I met, you know, people who wrote the TV that kind of nurtured me when I was younger. I got to work with and meet all the people that created and wrote all those shows that I watched. Is it true, never meet your heroes? You know, no, not, well, once or twice I met people who were important to me when I was young, and then they were kind of not that nice. looking for work, and oh. I couldn't really help them. Uh, other times I could. And but then uh, you, they were, you were no use to them. After yeah, yeah, and and it also just made me feel sad because no matter how much you've done or how much you've influenced somebody, there's no guarantee you're going to have a great, fulfilling life after that, you know. Right. Um, but so I've also met people, by the way, uh, met heroes where I was just thrilled to meet them and they were doing great. Bob Hope. Bob Hope, yeah. he did all right. I was just going to say, just kind of touching on what you just said, so what do you think is the secret to the longevity of having such a long career? Well, for me, you know, I remember starting out and there would be older writers in the room. Um people who had been doing it since the 60s, you know. And some, most of them, because they'd been around so long, were very flexible in their thinking. And they were funny right up until the end of their careers. There were others, though, that were pitching things that, as I was starting, seemed a little old hat, as we used to say. Mm. Uh, they seemed a little kind of, like, dated. Uh, just setups that felt like, you know, there are some setups that are just so old, and you're kind of like, oh, do people still do that kind of joke? Right, And I remember thinking that I didn't want to grow up to be the kind of writer who was sitting around a table pitching and the younger writers going, well, maybe that was funny in the 90s. <laughs> you know? and I really Another so beeper joke. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yes, we know 1975 called and they want that joke back or whatever. You know? uh, and I didn't want to be uh, that person ever. So I, I really try to not be married to specific joke structures as crutches. You know, uh, some writers will, some writers do that. They'll they'll hang on to a joke structure. You know, I don't want to say this, but that. You know, or or uh, 
I haven't been this mad since the time and then some co- pop culture reference or whatever. And um, so I, I really wanted to be fluid in the thinking there. And um, I think that's helped. I hope that that has helped me. You know, but that, that would be the secret to it, it is don't get trapped in your time period. Mm. You know, don't and, and understand it for what it is. Whatever is popular, whatever you're doing that works, it only means it works today. There is no guarantee that what you're doing that works so well today will work tomorrow. Don't keep just assuming, ah, I've got it. I think once you've assumed you've reached a certain level and you're, you're yeah. good, then I immediately you're essentially going backwards because everything else continues to move forward. There's some comedians, like, like um, I guess Steve Allen would be a good example. And he came and he was uh, along in the, in the 50s, and he was kind of new and different and silly and, 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 and kind of gave a new attitude to a lot of TV. And TV caught on and continued to evolve, and he kind of stayed in the same place. And there's some comics that do that, some, some old comedians. They, they will get to a certain level, then they're the hot thing. They're influencing everything. But they stay right where they are, and the world keeps going without them. The Beatles yeah. were great at evolving. You know, they're, th- thank God they weren't you know, trying to be four lovable mop tops <laughs> at the end of the 60s when everything was getting so radical. You know? uh, and so I think that's the thing is you, you, can't, you can't think I've achieved this plateau and now I stay here and my life is set. Where do you see the future of TV going? Uh, no. On your cell phone. I, yeah. Yeah, Everybody I, yeah. watches something different. Everyone yeah. watches something. Yeah, everyone. It's just getting smaller and smaller on the screen. I think the idea of getting the audience is, is it's going to be extremely difficult to do. And someone will do it. They'll get the audience again. But I think now it's going to be more like getting your audience. You know, getting the people who are like-minded. Hopefully bringing in people to whom your stuff is a new idea. You know, turning people that way. But um, everyone now seeks the things that they already know they like. And so they're not going to grow as much as they used to. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, when I grew up, uh, three channel, five channels by the time I was growing up in, in Ohio. And if you wanted to watch TV, as opposed to go out and get fresh air, because, you know, screw that, um, you had to watch whatever was on one of these five channels, and that was it. And right. during the day, three of them were showing soap operas. One was showing a game show, and one, one would show an old black-and-white movie from the 30s or the 40s. And if you wanted to watch TV, you had to watch that. So you'd sit there and you go, okay, I'll watch this. And then halfway through, you go, wow, oh, this character doesn't know about that. Okay, okay, that's good. And then by the end, it's like, that was great. And I only know it was great because I sat through it, because I sort of had to sit through it. But now, you know, everyone growing up has an infinite number of choices for what yeah. to watch. And so if you're a kid, are you going to watch a black and white movie from the 30s and 40s? Or are you going to watch, uh, uh, like if you're a little kid, a, a SpongeBob that you've seen 90 times already? You're going to watch that again. You go to the things you already know you like. And so you are not force-fed culture or a wide uh, array of possibilities. And that's one thing that's missed is that, uh, you know, uh, my generation, I don't, I, and I forgive me for keep saying my generation in my day, but there's, it's kind of instructive how different these two are, is that, that all of us um, grew up watching the same things. People my age, you can start to sing a theme song from a TV show and they'll up with the rest of it or a catchphrase from something that was big in the 70s and um and we all have that joining us but we also have a wider uh intake of uh, of what's been on in, in culture for the 20th century whereas now you know it's uh it's gonna be tricky to find new audience people who are seeking new things you know true but you're not gonna do it good luck <laughs> <laughs> there's no hope for any of us no 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 we're all screwed mass suicide any last questions? On that note. For Dan? Could, I could ask questions all day. but One more. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just geez. one. Just one? 
Um, well, I was, uh, I mean, you kind of touched on it already, but I mean, hey, I hate to backtrack, sure. but coming from Ohio to Hollywood, I know you said you did stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the process? What was the journey like, you know, when you first arrived here? Like, how did you go from just doing some comedy yeah. to be on stage to now writing yeah. on shows? Like, how was that? How did that well, come down? Um, to keep hammering that it was a different time, this was before there was the internet or home computers. The idea of people having computers in their homes, that was like sci-fi movies. Computers, to us in our minds, looked like they would take up a whole wall and have like big reel-to-reel tapes in them and blinking lights. Um, so the idea that people would have computers was insane. And I knew in Ohio I wanted to write for TV, but back then, not only no computers, no way to Google it. How do you become a TV yeah, writer? Yeah, how do you do it? There yeah. was no way. TV was like this mysterious thing that came from Hollywood or maybe New York. And so, and a lot of people weren't even aware there were TV writers. You know, TV stations back then still signed off at the end of the day. You couldn't watch TV in the middle of the night. Uh, and I remember I would tell people I want to go out to TV in Hollywood and write for television. They didn't. They had to have me explain what that even meant. Yeah. Um, they're like, that's a job? We don't get it? Yeah, yeah. they truly did. Yeah. I, had a, I tell the story a lot, but I, I had a girlfriend back there. That's right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I uh, told her I wanted to go to Hollywood and write for Johnny Carson, who was doing The Tonight Show. And she cool. said, what do you mean, write for Johnny Carson? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I'd like write his jokes. And she thought about it. And she said, oh, you mean like when he makes jokes, you would take them down like a stenographer? <laughs> I like, no, I would write them before he says them. And she, well, how do you know what he's going to say? Yeah. Like, no, you don't get it. Wait, he doesn't um, write his. He doesn't write all the jokes. They thought they really a lot of people, even though it would say written by. There was just no kind of yeah. thinking about that. Here's the TV show, and I'm going to enjoy the TV show and go on with my day. Um, and but I really wanted to do that, and I would tell my parents I want to write for TV, and my dad thought I was insane. Who do you think you are, the next Woody Allen? You can't. Ju- they don't just let people write for TV. Well, it, let, let somebody do it because it's happening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I dropped out of college early on because, you know, even the teachers there didn't know how to help me. I went to the English department. I said, I want to write Cleveland State. I want to write for TV. And colleges then, because no computers, couldn't be connected to the industry. They couldn't give you a sample script and say, here's mm. why this works. Here's why this doesn't work. Do more like, you know, whatever. Was there a ten- TV and film department back then? You know, I honestly don't know. Uh, but if it was, I'm sure they were just teaching people to do like local, like the morning exchange type like, shows. Okay, know? morning news or something. Or yeah, yeah, like local stuff. There, w- okay. I don't, I don't know that they were. That's a good question. I'm gonna find out next time I go back if there had been something. But, but either way, they weren't teaching anyone how to write the stuff. And uh, so I dropped out and I did stand up, and that taught me a lot. And in I, Ohio, I, yeah, I started in Ohio, and um, and then you know, was doing you know Pennsylvania and New York and Chicago, and started starting to do it in the Midwest. And, um, but I would constantly talk about writing TV and nobody who I met who was coming through doing standup, I would write jokes for comics that would pass through, but nobody really knew how to help me. So I knew one guy, a fellow named Gary Rayner, who was uh, doing uh, standup out in Cleveland. And he said he was moving to Los Angeles and if I ever wanted to sleep on his couch to give him a call. So eventually I just called him. I said, look, I'm going to do this because I've been talking about it. And unless I do it, I'll never learn how to do it unless I go there. So I left a note on the kitchen table for my parents. I had 100 bucks in my pocket and a one-way ticket. How old were you? 22. And I flew out, and my fr- and Gary picked me up. And so I lived in Van Nuys in his studio apartment with him for a while. And I started doing stand-up out here. I met someone who knew someone who was writing for a show called Charles in Charge who told me how you write a spec script. You write a sample. You pick a show that you like, and you write an episode of it, mm-hmm. essentially, to, to show people whether you can tell a story and capture the characters' voices and that sort of thing. And I took a bus into Hollywood and where, the, where a souvenir shop sold scripts that had been produced. And 
I bought an episode of Cheers for five dollars, oh. and it was written by David Lloyd, and the guy I knew years later. And that's so uh, that's so crazy. Isn't that crazy. Yeah, that's so wild. And yeah. I studied uh, the Cheers script front to back. I'd never seen a script before, and I watched the show every week. And I borrowed a manual typewriter on which the space key, I always tell this story, on which the space key did not always work. So after every <laughs> word, I had to manually advance the carriage. And I would hold script pages against the window and my typing pages over that so the light would come through and I could mark where the margins had to go because mm. I wanted it to look like a professional script. Right. I tapped out uh, a Cheers episode. And this writer that I'd met, the Charles in Charge guy, he told me what I did right and what I did wrong. And I did it again. And then I wrote a Cosby Show script. And then he showed it to his boss who hired me as a staff writer on a show called It's a Living. And that was a show about these waitresses in a restaurant in Los Angeles. And that was in 85. Was that your first writing gig? First, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And his first script that I had produced and first okay. time my name was on TV. And then... Um, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So it, it happened pretty fast. It actually it happened within yeah. a year. And I was, I, and the timing was lucky, meeting the right people at the right time. I, you know, I can't, I can only take credit in that I showed up and was willing to do the work. As far as everything dropping into my lap, that was sheer luck and timing. Um, Did that old spec script of Cheers ever make it into the actual show? No. However, um, a couple years later, I had done a few shows and I freelanced an episode of Newhart. And then I teamed up with a, my writer friend, Tom Anderson from Willoughby, Ohio. Woo! And uh, he and I needed to write a spec script that showed that we could write as a team so people would have a sample. And we wrote a Cheers. And that Cheers became, when we were hired on we were hired, we were off that we were hired on Newhart for another year. And then we were offered to freelance on Cheers. And we went over there on staff. And they liked our spec script. And, they, and the spec script had an A story and a B story. And both of them were turned into episodes of Cheers. Oh, that's so cool. that was rarely happens. We were quite pleased with ourselves about that. Um, what yeah. was th what was that initial after you were in LA? What was that initial phone call with your parents like? Oh, I called them from LAX. Collect <laughs> just to let them know that I'd landed safely. And my mom answered the phone, and I could hear my father in the background yelling at my brother and sister. Did you know about this? <laughs> he was so mad. Did they um, know about it? Uh, my brother did. He gave me the ride to the airport, um, and they both knew about it. Um, and uh, one thing my dad didn't know is that my mom knew about it. And she was, my mom was just like, look, I'm just happy you have a direction. Cause I almost bombed out of Riverside. I was, my grades were so bad. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, I, have met, you know, some of my old teachers in the last couple of years. Most of them are now between the ages of dead, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I met a couple who were like, yeah, I remember you. I didn't know what was going to happen to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. So my mom was just thrilled that I, I was even trying to move in any direction yeah. as opposed to just someone who would sit on the couch for the rest of his life, you know? So uh, my mom was for it in that regard. I don't think she really thought I was going to do anything, but just the <laughs> fact that I was trying was enough for her. So she knew, but that was a secret. That my so I tell you, so if my dad watches it. Mom knew. <laughs> mom knew that I I said goodbye to her before Secret's I went to the airport. <laughs> um, yeah, thirty six years later, I think. Did you make uh, that phone call when the when you got that first episode of that first TV show? Like, is that your name's going to pop up in the credits? I'm sure. Did I tell did. About I, you know, it? I'm a little blurry about that. Okay, I, I, it's so long ago now, but I'm sure. Like when I first got hired, I, yeah, I'm sure I told them. and Because uh, um, that had been some validation, guys. You yeah, can see oh my name on TV. Because, you know, even before my episode, I was listed as like a staff writer or something. And mm. so it was the at, at the end of the show. Uh, but, yeah, it would come up there. There, there I was. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, and I think I a friend of mine took a picture of the screen. I might even still have it somewhere. Um, but that's what you used to do then because there were no videotapes. No so we were taking yeah. pictures of our credits on the screen. <laughs> um but yeah, it was a, it was kind of a big thing, and it took a while for my parents to wrap their head around it. You know, at first I think they were confused by it, 
And I think they must have thought at some point I had done something nice for somebody in Hollywood and that they were just being nice to me for some <laughs> reason. You know, I'd pulled a thorn out of someone's hand or whatever. Wow. Um, in fact, my parents visited when I was at Cheers and they went up to my executive producer and they were like, oh, thank you, thank you for having <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, well, he deserves to be here. Like, no, thank you. Yeah. We, we both know he doesn't. But <laughs> wink, uh, wink, wink, wink. Yeah, it's, it's funny. They, they really, and, and part of it, I don't really blame them because... You know, in retrospect, you got to remember that as a parent, your impression of your child is formed by your first 15, 20 years on the planet. And <laughs> I was running around trying to be funny, and I was agonizingly yeah. not funny, quite obnoxious <laughs> and loud. Ask your mom. And, um, <laughs> and it was like this, that, and drop this, and fall down, and funny, pseudo-funny line. And so that's their main impression of me. Well, by the time I started being actually funny, you know, they, they, they're still, their impression of me is their impression. So the idea that I'm going to go out there and try to be funny professionally was just like, oh, this this kid just doesn't know what's going on, you know. So I get it that they that they did not have any faith in me, but still, <laughs> things Love have it. changed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dan, any plugs? Orville. Uh, yeah, watch the Orville or don't. I, I'm not going to be out of TV. It's not going to affect my career at all. Watch <laughs> these guys, though. Hey, hey, our Next audience time. has heard about us. Okay, good. Well, good. Um, Do you have any audience questions or we done? Uh, we actually we had some audience questions. Here you go. I mean, how long is this podcast going to go? Well, I mean, we, we have I'm sorry. I feel like I've just been chatting and chatting. That's what we want. Yeah, no, days go exactly by. It's been dark and light outside. <laughs> and just to confirm, we have you for the full six hours. Oh, good lord! <laughs> we got plenty of coffee. It's all right. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have these ready. He doesn't. He doesn't we ask questions. questions. Audience questions. Um, okay. Nah, I mean. Oh wow! I wasn't going to even ask. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask more right. questions. Right. No. My dad asking no. who I think I am. <laughs> no, no, we answered. We we talked about all the important stuff. Who does Dan think he is? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but Dan, I just want to cool. say, dude, I really appreciate you. Well, thanks for coming on. Me. Just you know, having awesome. you, uh, you know, knowing you came from Cleveland and you, you made it. Really, you know, it's it's cool. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. Yeah. Thanks. Well, it's very flattering to know, and it's it's nice to have the the hometown connection. Yeah. You know, it's really cool because I, you know, when you talk about you know, where you came from, I can picture it. I know exactly that life. You know, so uh, it's. Glad you're out here. Did you ever go to the Maple Festival in Chardon? No. You know what? When I was, I think they had a version of that when I was younger. I remember going to a big pancake breakfast. So if they do that, nice. then yes, I've been. <laughs> nice. Funny. Oh yeah, no, I go back whenever I can. I, I love it there. Isn't there a, a reunion coming up? Oh yeah, next year. Oh god, 40, uh, 40 year high school reunion. And our mom year. is oh. gonna go. I hope so. She is. She is. She better. Yeah, it's, well, I was back there for a whole year, and I think I ran into her somewhere, and we, we talked about getting together for lunch, and then we never did. I blame nice. her. Right. Because <laughs> I wanted to, but then she just didn't. Well, it's her like fault. They, they, leave, <laughs> they live out here now in Redondo Beach, and now the, it, what? They, they, yeah, yeah, they moved out here. When? <laughs> I mean, now, now people listening to this are just listening to our podcast. <laughs> hey, it's all right. Oh, it's our mom listening right now. Uh, <laughs> Hi. Um, but uh, they've definitely been there since January. A couple years? Yeah, c- yeah. Well, for a while, because our dad at first got work out here, and then they eventually made the move, so it's kind of like a blurry... He's in marketing. Oh, okay, yeah. Exactly. Oh, right, right. Um, but I'm just saying, now that everybody lives out here, nobody gets together as much as opposed to when they used to yeah. visit. Yeah. But that's L.A. That's true. It that's happens. true. I, so I've been out here. You guys live, like, blocks from me. Um, and oh, like really? we don't see cool. each other very often, so we'll start doing that. At yeah. the Whole Foods. Yeah, or sure. Bristol Farm is where I go. Nice. Oh, really? The one right by um, uh, Beverly and the, the Directors Third. Guild? I go, I'm like, I'm like, I live on Doheny. Right, right. So a little bit down. But I, remember, uh, I remember seeing those robots in your apartment. Oh, yeah, yes, that's right. My time. family. <laughs> I'm so alone. <laughs> 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 no, uh, but, uh, that's right. I remember you guys came over. 
I, after I, a modern family. I didn't. Yeah, yeah that was me. And my parents. Oh. Snooze, Jeez. you lose, bro. Hey. Hey, uh, thanks, guys. Take care, guys. Awesome. Guys, breakfast? Yes, I, I hope I wasn't too boring. Oh, no, that was, that was, that was awesome. Blah, blah, blah. It was like, I love it. That was great. Yeah, thanks for going so long, too. Hour 20, oh my god. I failed to, I failed <laughs> to I specify just, with Dan. I'm very sorry for you. <laughs>